The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in now Andy Viderhorn. He is the CEO of Fat Brands. Um, they uh, run, own and run restaurants, including Johnny Rockets, Fat Burger and Buffalo's Cafe. I have to say there used to be a Johnny Rockets on 3rd and like 56th. Um, and I would go there and get a double bacon cheeseburger with that Applewood <laughs> smoked bacon and a peanut butter milkshake, which I would, I would kill someone for one of those right now. But um, uh, what's changed about the business um, Andy, since since I've been down there, I'm I'm in Berlin the last uh, five years, so I haven't been back in the states, and I don't even think that um, that restaurant on Third Avenue is open anymore. So what's what's Johnny Rockets? What's Fat Burger like now? Well, you know, uh, thanks for having me. The uh, Johnny Rockets brand we bought it six months ago, um, and there are about 325 restaurants. 175 of those are international. They're all over the place, all over Europe, all over Latin and uh, South America. Um, and you know we have like a hundred of them down there, so they're they're everywhere today, growing rapidly. Um, we don't have one in in Manhattan today, but hopefully we'll have another one there soon. Uh, and you know, business is growing. All right, so give us a, a just give us a we're thirteen to fourteen months, Andy, into this pandemic. Give us a kind of a before the pandemic and kind of where we are now. How has the pandemic impacted your businesses? You bet. We've been uh, we've been fortunate uh, in that most of our brands have um, met or exceeded their their 2019 levels. Now they've recovered. The burger brands, Fat Burger, Elevation Burger, which is an organic grass fed burger chain on the East Coast, and Johnny Rockets, um, recovering nicely. A lot of delivery into go business, uh, so they were really fortunate to be able to take advantage of that market. Um, they're probably at like 85 percent of normal. There are a lot of special venues that aren't quite open yet, like amusement parks, theme parks, things like that everywhere where Johnny Rackets uh, movie theaters has a lot of locations. Uh, on the Hurricane Grill and Wings Buffalo's Cafe, those are casual dining restaurants with full bars and outdoor dining rooms and all that. They're at like 117 percent of normal. So they're just recovering like crazy. And part of that is because during the pandemic, when outdoor dining was allowed, um, delivery and to go raised awareness and then when customers are allowed to come back to the dining rooms, you have all this additional delivery business that customers didn't really know about before. And so now they're over 100% of normal. So doing very well there. A little bit of trouble in the Midwest with our steakhouse unit, uh, Ponderosa and Bonanza, where a lot of closures for a long period of time, probably lost some stores there, but it's a small percentage of our total 700 restaurants. So we've been very fortunate. When you say organic and grass-fed, my mouth immediately starts to water. And I jumped on the Fat Burger website site, I see you have an XXXL Triple King Burger. That's a one and a half pounds. Um, <laughs> I would attempt it. 
I'm not sure if I could you know, actually. We, we have a contest. If you eat that burger, the Triple X Challenge, or it used to be called the Triple King Challenge, you, if you can eat that burger, you get a T-shirt and a certificate. But <laughs> oftentimes we see guys and girls go into the restaurants and the girls always win because they're much smarter and they're not eating French fries and drinking too much soda while they're trying to get that thing down. And uh, they're very methodical about it. So it's definitely a, a contest burger. Well, as the Grateful Dead said, the women are smarter. Um, what I noticed is there's not a lot of fake meat here. Um, on Fat Burger, on the Johnny Rockets menu, I do see um, you know, a garden burger, a black bean burger. What do you think about the fa- uh, fake meat trend? I don't know if fake meat is a pejorative term, but you know what I mean, right? Um, more and more people are- Plant-based proteins. So, exa- exactly. Yeah, so- we, we have plant-based proteins across all of our brands today. That's the Impossible Burger uh, domestically, um, and it, it's um, the Beyond Burger in some international markets because of distribution. But the Impossible Burger is a great product. Um, plant-based proteins are here to stay. Uh, brands need to a- adapt them. And basically, you take that, that patty that tastes like beef and bleeds like beef, and you add the toppings that come with your burger, whether it's a, an Elevation product or a Fat Burger product or a Johnny Rockets product, and it's going to taste like a Johnny Rockets burger or a Fat Burger. You know, it's just got a, a different element of the patty. But plant-based proteins are here. They're not going away. They make up a segment of the market where it's much better than the ordinary you know, garden burger or Boca patty burger, which we have also. But you know, if you want the flavor of beef, then you're going to have to go to a plant-based protein and it's, it's really because people don't want to eat the red meat. It's not because they're the healthiest product in the market, because they're not. It's just a delicious product. Um, on the cost side, Andy, talk to us about employees and, and the ability to attract and retain employees these days. There's so much talk out there that uh, stimulus is impacting that. Two words for you. Total nightmare. The okay. labor market in the labor market in the restaurant industry right now has been decimated by the stimulus package and unemployment benefits. And it's impossible to get people to come back to work and to get new hires, new general managers, new employees in the restaurants that are under construction to be built. And this is not something that we experienced nine months ago when the first round of PPP loans and stimulus checks went out. We really didn't see this problem, but now we have people hanging around the hoop to get their check and spend their money instead of coming back to work and it's it's just been a problem. Now obviously it's gonna wear off fairly soon when unemployment benefits drop off and the stimulus checks are spent. But right now it's been very difficult and it's driven up food prices as well because the same problem exists at the processing plants yeah. and for the distribution centers. So we have shortages all over the country because the like Cisco and US Foods and all the big broadline distributors have run out of drivers. All right. We've heard that around uh, the business. Andy Wiederhorn, CEO of Fat Brands, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts on the restaurant industry. Let's get the latest, shall we, on some of the leading geopolitical issues that are out there right now in the news. When we do that, we always like to turn to Admiral James Stravitas. He's a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, retired U.S. Navy admiral and a former military commander of NATO. And Admiral Stravitas is always kind with his time when we want to talk some of these big geopolitical issues. Admiral, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to start on the Ukraine because that seems to be the most topical here. We have Russia massing troops on the border there. What do you think is going on and what do you think the U.S. response should be, if any? We should first start with recognizing that in 2014, Russia actually invaded Ukraine and carved a significant chunk out of their territory, the uh, peninsula of Crimea, strategically important in the Black Sea. Uh, Russia has continued to service and support 
uh, rebel groups in southeastern Ukraine. So there's a lot of bad history there. And now over the last two to three weeks, we've seen reports vary, but between 20,000 and I I saw a number as high as 80,000 troops. This is a significant force. So the reason for it, I think, is threefold. One is uh, Putin is rattling a saber at the United States because he knows that there are going to be some significant sanctions coming against his regime for the uh, activities uh, on cyber in our election and above all the Solar Winds Act. Number two, uh, Putin is playing to his home crowd, if you will. All politics are local in the end. He's trying to, um, if you will, show the, the strength and the power of Russia, how they can drive events. And then third and finally, he is seeking to uh, distract from uh, the imprisonment and uh, the poisoning of Alexander Navalny, his uh, political opponent. So he's got a, a shopping list of things he wants to do. He's got 80,000 troops on the border, let's say. I think the chances are still low that he will actually conduct an invasion. But he is certainly uh, seeking to demonstrate that he can make things very difficult for the United States and the West if he desires to. Well, and Biden's been pretty bold when talking to um, President Putin. I don't think it's unfair to say that um, Donald Trump seemingly adored the Russian leader. And, you know, Biden comes right out of the gate kicking, calling him a murderer. Um, On the other hand, Admiral, it does seem as though a lot of these geopolitical hotspots, a lot of these bad actors are... uh, are showing strength right when this new administration comes into office. Is Am I seeing it the wrong way, or do the Russians and the Chinese just feel more comfortable doing these kind of things with um, Democrats in office? I don't know if it's more comfortable, but uh, there's certainly a long history on both sides, Republican and Democrat, of having to experience testing when you take over. And so uh, when uh, President Trump took over, we saw Kim Jong-un launch uh, ballistic missiles. Um, When President Biden takes over, as you just saw, uh, we see Ukraine. But the other one, and you're absolutely right, is Taiwan. We've seen uh, the Chinese fly uh, 25 fighters into the air defense zone of Taiwan, highest number uh, since Taiwan started recording these kind of incidents. China has a carrier strike group operating just off the coast of Taiwan right now. So I think it's very true to say that every administration gets tested early. The question is, how do you respond? And in my most recent Bloomberg opinion piece, which came out this morning, um, my prescription is you got to stare Putin down. He is a killer. And if you give in to him, if you appease him, There's no future in that process. So I think we've got to take a fairly strong stance uh, across that Ukrainian border, not with armed U.S. military troops parachuting in there, but giving more weapons to Ukraine, providing them training, allowing them partnership agreements with NATO. They're not members of NATO, but they've been a close ally or a close partner of NATO over the years. So there's a lot we can do to demonstrate to Putin that there'll be a significant cost to, to him. 
Admiral, this brings up an issue. Um, you know, I was kind of excited to see a positive um, headline, Ari, NATO cooperation this morning at a, uh, the meeting in Brussels. They're going to put another 500, the U.S. is going to put another 500 troops here in Germany, where I am. I'm in Berlin. Hmm. On the other hand, I have been uh, stationed here for the last five years and just shocked to see that um, the chancellor, who otherwise is considered, you know, a leader of the G20, is so determined to get a pipeline up to Russia, um, essentially a pipeline that funnels cash to Vladimir Putin in exchange for his natural gas. And now it looks like Germans are also looking to get the Russian vaccine. Um, Is it important where you buy your commodities? I mean, uh, aren't we funding a really problematic regime here? We are. And uh, as I was saying <clears throat> just today in an interview with a German newspaper, they were asking me the same questions. Um, let's add another controversy, which is Germany apparently is determined to use Huawei to build their 5G networks. And as I said to the German reporter, you know, life is full of choices for people and for alliances. And yes, it is important to the long term relationship with the U.S. and Germany that uh, Germany stands with the United States against these authoritarian regimes, both Russia and China. All right, Admiral, let's move from hotspots on the planet Earth to space. You also have another column, Al. You've been prolific. Talking about Russia and China teaming up in a new space race, what's the latest there and what's the ramifications for the U.S.? Well, the big news here is not just space. It is the way Russia and China are drawing closer and closer and closer together. They're aligning themselves diplomatically, economically, militarily, largest exercise, military exercise uh, conducted since the end of the Cold War was up on the Siberian border between Russia and China about a year ago. Um, This latest thing is that Russia and China have come together and announced they will uh, create an outpost on the moon, a uh, a lunar outpost. This is a big deal because um, it has not only commercial economic implications, but it also has real military uh, potential in it. And both of these nations, as I talk about in, in that Bloomberg opinion piece, both of them are really using their space programs in a highly militarized way. So we had to be quite concerned watching these two nations, both authoritarian regimes, both of whom we have difficult relationships with, drawing closer and closer together in space and in other areas. Admiral, thanks very much for joining us. Always great to get your take on these issues. Uh, Admiral James Dravidis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. He is uh, now, of course, retired from the U.S. Navy and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, um, as well as an executive consultant at the Carlisle Group um, and has a number of other interests. He's got a book out, uh, 2034, a novel of the next world war. I've read the beginning and I only put it down because I had to come to work. I actually thought about <laughs> calling in sick and just reading, reading the rest of the book. It's so good. And I'm really into that kind of stuff. So great to have general, uh, sorry, Admiral James Stravides on, um, talking about the geopolitical hotspots around the world. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, let's dig deeper into this Johnson & Johnson news this morning. We do that with uh, one of our favorite voices in all things pharmaceutical. That's Sam Fazelli. He's a senior pharma analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, based out of London. He also manages Bloomberg Intelligence for all of Europe. So we appreciate getting some of his valuable time. Sam, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, when I look at the numbers being reported, six cases out of almost 7 million, you know, a lot of observers would say that's a pretty good result. Why are we pausing? this thing when it's, yeah. it's so important to get shots into arms. I'd love to get your thoughts. Yes. Hi, Paul. Sorry. Um, I, I think it's absolutely the right thing for the CDC and the FDA to have done because number one, this, this event, this issue takes sometimes up to two weeks after the dose to uh, rear its ugly head, unfortunately. So it's very possible that the numbers will continue to rise possibly to 10 or 15, who knows? I can tell you that with AstraZeneca, we're looking at something in the region of one in uh, 100,000, depending on the age of the people who've been vaccinated. So if that's the case, then we, we would expect to see more, more, more here. And that, I think, is why the CDC has done and the FDA have done what they've done. And of course, the US does not need the J&J vaccine to get the majority of its people vaccinated. And uh, that's it. Mm. It's still a bummer, uh, Sam, because I was uh, just just last night made final plans to fly back to New York to get the J&J vaccine um, since it's proving very difficult to get it here in Germany. That won't be the case now. I would still um, take it. uh, And it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, the problems that we've seen with blood clots and AstraZeneca and the problems that we've seen in uh, the J&J vaccine with blood clots see, seem to affect females under, let's say, the age of 60, if you like. Is that is that a fair assessment? Well, so let's just be careful here, though, Matt. Um, and that is that it's only six cases in the U.S., so that's not an enough number of people to make that decision. In the U.K., where they've had the most cases, and in Europe, when you look at the reported incidents, divided by the number of people of the different sexes that have been vaccinated, um, it doesn't have a, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't distinguish between men and women based Mm. in the UK. Maybe something different in the US, but I doubt it. All right, Sam, you mentioned that, um, and when you and I were talking much earlier this morning, you kind of, you made the comment to me that, again, we have plenty of supply here from Pfizer and Moderna. But I think about Europe, and I think about other parts of the world that may be relying more on a single-dose shot like the Johnson & Johnson, this could be problematic, no? Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, uh, the the European Union and the the UK, I think, will be fine. It might be a bit slower than than expected in terms of or anticipated in terms of uh, Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna shots, and then soon, of course, we'll have Novavax. but um, the rest of the world is where the problem starts because they have mostly either the J&J AstraZeneca vaccine or the vaccine from Russia or China. Don't forget, the Russian vaccine is also an adenovirus, and I would be amazed if that doesn't have the same side effects. 
which of course will be incredible to have uh, if it doesn't. But then you have the China vaccines that so far what we've seen published, and not a lot has been published, they're not that effective. So you have a, a problem evolving there. Yeah, um, I, I just want to cover a couple of headlines, uh, bad headlines we're seeing come across the ticker right now. First off, New York City suspending its homebound senior vaccine drive due to the J&J pause. Um, even if the J&J pause is the right thing to do, it's unfortunate that they have to stop this effort to go around and uh, vaccinate the people who need it most. Um, also, the U.S. is saying what they see with the J&J vaccine is similar to the Astra vaccine, I guess, as far as the data that they have. Um, They are saying it's unclear if there's any link between the blood clots and birth control pills. And this goes back to the female issue, Sam, that we were talking about. Um, They're saying they don't have any evidence to support that, but clearly there's that speculation out there. Yeah, but the European Union's already answered that question. 222 cases of this odd uh, VITT, it's called, vaccine-induced thrombosis with thrombocytopenia. That's a mouthful. Um, mm. This VITT, 222 cases, and there is no obvious link. So we, we have the answer. We don't need to go and ask any more questions on that one. And what you get with these things, with flights, with contraceptive pill, is just the clotting. You don't get that thrombocytopenia, that loss of pl- blood platelets that normally causes bleeding. It's very rare to have a bleeding issue and a clotting issue at the same time, Right. That's the problem here. All right, Sam, thank you so much uh, for joining us once again. We turn to you often when there's news on the vaccines and this pandemic. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Sam Fazelli, he's a senior pharmaceutical analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the absolute best for decades in the city of London doing that. And he's also the manager of all of Bloomberg Intelligence for Europe. Uh, Getting the latest here on this Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine setback here, the now the CDC and the FDA we're seeing headlines uh, that they expect the delay to be, in, quote, in a matter of days. Uh, so hopefully that is the way it turns out. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Now, I want to get over to David Garrity, chief market strategist at Laidlaw and Company, to talk to us about um, his expectations on the markets and tech. And David... I always feel like I'm talking to someone famous when we have you on, so I'm really psyched <laughs> to get uh, some time with you. Um, what do you think about the Coinbase IPO? It's going to be, what, a $100 billion valuation, bigger than the exchange on which it's going to be listed. Is this a whole lot of hype, or is this a growth industry? Well, I mean, Coinbase, certainly, and thank you, Paul, for your kind words, but you know, Coinbase, if we're looking at it, certainly has been serving very much as a gatekeeper. Uh, relative to the cryptocurrency market as a whole, uh, you know, given what they've got in terms of an account base at 58 million accounts, I mean, arguably for an asset class that has certainly seen very strong performance over the last 12 months, you know, they are probably the preeminent exchange to go to. Certainly, they're a business in which, obviously, a lot of other exchanges in other types of asset classes would like to be involved. 
Um, we don't necessarily see uh, cryptocurrencies, you know, going away, much as we saw back in 2017, because now we see measures coming into place that the cryptocurrency market in its own way is being institutionalized. Now, that said, we can say crypto's got better traction now, um, but we also say, look at the valuation that you're paying for Coinbase, you know, less than $2 billion in revenue last year, $100 billion likely valuation. You know, it, it's pretty rich valuation anytime you see something going out at more than 50 times revenues. Um, you know, will they be able to grow into this valuation? Remains to be seen. But yeah, you're, you're paying a lot to owe this name. All right. So, but if I'm an investor here and all I hear is Bitcoin this, Bitcoin that, but I see it going up every day, I feel like I've missed it. Is this a way for me to maybe get exposure and maybe this is my crypto play writ large by getting into this Coinbase? I mean, I would agree to it. And it's not just a matter of getting Bitcoin exposure, but it's also getting exposure to the other cryptocurrencies that are listed, whether we're looking at the likes of Ethereum, uh, whether we're looking at the likes of Litecoin, uh, Tether or others. Uh, so from that standpoint, it, it, it's a little bit of a picks and shovel uh, type of play, if you will. And, uh, and an important part of the infrastructure for the overall cryptocurrency ecosystem. So, yes, in that name, it, it is going to be a marquee holding for investors looking at the sector. Hey, you, uh, ha do, you do you have a 4,500 um, price target on the S&P? Because I'm looking at your note and it says, will earnings growth drive the S&P 500 towards 4,500? Are we going to hit that that level this year, or are you thinking just sometime in the future? I mean, in our view, the trends are kind of moving in that direction. Uh, and really, here at the doorstep of first quarter earnings season for 2021, we just have to go back and look at what kind of outperformance we've had over the second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter of 2020 earnings seasons. And there we've seen outperformance versus Wall Street expectations of about 13%. You know, we think that we're probably maybe not necessarily a 13 percent outperformance in the first quarter earnings season. But we think that 9 percent, you know, isn't necessarily out of, out of reach. You know, if we can move and have a positive estimate revision up in terms of S&P 500 earnings estimates for 2021 and 2022, if we can hold, you know, the P.E. multiple valuation constant, yeah, that'll get us to 4,500. Now, the question in terms of valuation multiples is, you know, what's going on relative to the 10-year? And we saw the 10-year cap out March 1st, 1.75%. And I think that basically the big surprise in terms of strategist expectations of 2021 has been the fact that uh, the dollar, instead of weakening, has actually strengthened. And the strength of the dollar has been important because it now allows foreign investors, whether it's Europeans, whether it's Japanese, with insurance companies or others, uh, to you know buy into U.S. Treasuries on a currency-hedged basis. And, and certainly earn positive spread over what they can get back in their own home markets. So our view here is dollar strength leads to greater foreign demand for U.S. fixed income, which helps to slow down the rate of interest rates rising from here. And if interest rate rises are moderating, that arguably can work well for equities as long as earnings growth comes through and valuation levels hold. I know it's a lot to ask, but that's kind of how the mechanics work. To get All right, David. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about uh, the chip shortage that we're seeing in uh, the technology space, because it's not just a technology issue. It's rippling out to other parts of the economy. Most notably, I think the auto industry has been calling it out here for several quarters. How bad is it, and what do you think the solution is? 
Well, you know, certainly the dislocations that took place because things were shut down uh, for the period of time that they were in 2020, you know, means that you've got a lot of imbalances that have built up in the supply chain. If we're looking at the lead times people have to have right now, I think the number is up to about 16 weeks, depending upon the category of semiconductors, um, you know, orders to delivery. But in some cases, it's far worse. It's not just the auto industry. If we were to look at network routers, um, you know, there are indications that order times have stretched out as far as a year. Uh, and for the rollout of broadband capacity, um, <clears throat> you know, routers obviously are a very critical element here. And so we're seeing, um, you know, points of constraint develop across the wider economy and, and not just in the auto sector. And certainly, you know, what was interesting about the Biden administration summit uh, with CEOs where they were talking about, you know, allocating $50 billion of fiscal support towards easing semiconductor shortages and putting more capacity here in the U.S. is that, you know, there is competition, whether it's amongst the auto industry or other sectors who are trying to secure these chip supplies. In the process, you know, we have to look uh, on a more medium to long-term solution that can put in place the capacity domestically, arguably, or at least closer by. Is that um, going to happen? David, is it, that going to, is five, five to 10 years, are we making the super high-tech chips at home? I'd say, you know, TSMC putting $12 billion to work in uh, their five nanometer wafer plant in Phoenix, Arizona is important in that regard. And yeah, five to 10 years, we're going to have that fab online as well as a, potentially a number of others. Obviously, Intel made their own announcement, I think, last week, mm -hmm. uh, $20 billion. Yep. So yeah, this, we're moving in that direction. And we need to move in that direction because China has certainly indicated they want to be more self-sufficient. So right. they'll take their first call on that asset. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. As always, David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Companies, also our president at BT Block. He is our, one of our go-to guys for all things technology. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.